1: when
2: and if we get to a merit stage, there is also language in the court's jurisprudence suggesting that to find genocide on the merits, that genocidal intent needs to be the only explanation or the only possible explanation. And so there is a disconnect, certainly, between the legal framework or the legal test at this preliminary stage and the legal test that would apply
0: at what we call the merit stage. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, January 17th, 2024. Shimen Keitner is the Martin Luther King Jr. Professor of Law at the University of California at Davis. She is a leading international law authority and served for a number of years at the State Department Legal Advisor's Office. She is the author of a lengthy piece today on Lawfare about South Africa's petition under the Genocide Convention against Israel in the International Court of Justice. It is that rare thing, a sober and dispassionate look at a subject that has lots of people running around waving their hands in the air. Shemen joined me in the Virtual Jungle Studio to talk about the litigation. What South Africa's claim is under the Genocide Convention, what Israel's defense is, where both sides are vulnerable, and how the court is likely to consider the matter at this preliminary stage. It's the Lawfare Podcast, January 17th. Shimen Keitner on South Africa, Israel, and the Genocide Convention. So Shemin, I want to start by congratulating you because you've actually done something here that I would not have predicted was possible, which was to write a dispassionate account of the state of play at the ICJ about South Africa's petition against Israel under the Genocide Convention. And I want to start with just getting your sense of why the conversation about this subject is so ferocious and agonized uh that you know the the piece that you've written on on lawfare is really i think the first deep breath and step back uh that i've seen
2: well thank you so much for that Ben and i'm i'm glad to be with you although of course i wish the circumstances were different I teach international law and I know people as I know you do on both sides of this conflict and and not just, you know, in the conflict that's been raging since October 7th, but of course it's going back decades. And so I actually feel a tremendous amount of passion, but I understand or at least try to understand why it has gotten to this state And I think it's a lot of reasons. I think first of all, as I note in the piece, um, and as many others have noted as well, the concept of genocide, both on its own, in terms of the huge debates we've seen about whether to label historic events, genocides or current events genocides. I mean that that label has achieved a status, really unlike any other international crime. I'm not sure justifiably so, but, but certainly it has for a variety of reasons. And so regardless of the underlying facts, any allegation of the crime of genocide is going to be uh, extremely emotionally charged. Layered on top of that, of course, is the fact that the term genocide was coined by a Jewish lawyer during essentially the Holocaust. And so although I don't think the Holocaust is the only genocide certainly that's ever occurred, we could hope that it's the only one or that the ones that have occurred so far are the only ones that will occur. But unfortunately, uh, humanity has not gotten to that point yet. But I think that the particular historical and contextual resonance of that term, vis-a-vis Israelis and particularly Jews, uh, is undeniable. And then I think uh, the fact that this is an adversarial proceeding before an international court, and I know we'll get into some of the details because the popular understanding both of the term genocide and of what an international court in this situation can and cannot do, I think are understandably sort of a little bit of a caricature of, of what's actually going to happen. Uh, but when you mix in an adversarial proceeding to what is already obviously a tremendously adversarial and costly conflict. I mean, it's almost the perfect storm of extremes. All right.
0: So let's start with some level setting about terms and institutions. What is genocide? And here I'm referring to genocide as a term of art under international law as defined in the Genocide Convention Not genocide as we more colloquially use it, where it can kind of mean anything the speaker wants it to mean, uh, at least if there are enough dead people. Right. Well, the
2: Genocide Convention, which came out of largely the efforts of, of Raphael Lemkin, defines a new crime or at the time a crime that hadn't previously had a label uh, attaching the side, right, the C-I-D-E to uh, genos, uh, the idea being a, a people, a particular kind of people. So uh, genocide can be committed against a national or racial or ethnic group, uh, not just any kind of group. So for example, in Cambodia, there were lots of debates about, well, you know, if political affiliation or socioeconomic status is the basis for targeting a group. Can that be a genocide within the meaning of this treaty? And then also the intent of the perpetrators needs to be, uh, and again, this is from the legal text that was agreed by countries and and that I think we can fairly say has entered into what we call customary international law. The intent of of the acts, and. talk about acts, they include those you would expect, you know, murder, forced displacement can be genocidal, uh, measures intended to prevent births within a group can be genocidal. Uh, But the intent of those acts needs to be to destroy the group uh, in whole or in part. And so most violence is not genocidal. And importantly, that does not make it lawful under international law. And that does not make it ethical. Uh, Being not genocidal is a very low bar. Uh, But this term, as it has uh, evolved and and as it has been codified in international law, does have that very specific and
0: very narrow meaning. And so before we go on, I want to pause over that because, you know, if you can say that the Cambodian what we colloquially call the Cambodian genocide is not a genocide because, you know, they're the same people, Cambodians killing Cambodians, and it's class-based. And you can sort of make the same argument, though it predates the Genocide Convention, of the liquidation of the kulaks by Stalin, right? Uh, Just a a class-based annihilation Or for that matter, the great leap forward is, you know, communist Han Chinese killing uh, or starving to death, you know, very large numbers of other Han Chinese. It may be, and not because they're Han Chinese, but because they're class enemies. What value really is the concept of genocide if it doesn't capture these gigantic crimes against humanity uh, in which very large numbers of, you know, in some cases, tens of millions of people die. Is the concept really useful?
2: I think that's a you know very valid question. To begin with, we do also have an explicitly defined category of crimes in international law called crimes against humanity. And so, although maybe even because it's not a single word, it hasn't taken on the same kind of valence uh, or focus as the crime of genocide has, uh, I think many of the things you've described could undoubtedly fall into the category of crimes against humanity and are Patently unlawful and condemnable as such. Similarly, there's a whole body of law, as you know, governing the conduct of armed conflict. And again, war crimes are not better or worse than any other kind of crime, in my view. I think that the meaning that genocide has acquired and the reason that there is a separate international treaty. About genocide, and parenthetically, still not an international treaty about crimes against humanity, although one has been in the works for a very long time, is perhaps number one that people like Lemkin felt that there was something qualitatively different about the intent to annihilate a group. I mean, you and I have both been to Yad Vashem, and you see these little models of naked people lined up in front of incinerators and gas chambers and the systematic nature there, understanding, of course, that it was not only Jewish people who were targeted in the Holocaust, but certainly predominantly. I think Lemkin felt that there just needed to be a separate category for that kind of intent resulting in that many deaths and the decimation of an entire population. That said, I just finished reading Philippe Sands' book that's been out for quite a while, East West Street, about Lemkin and about Hirsch Lauterpacht, who was a contemporary of his, who I hadn't realized was actually quite opposed to the idea of genocide and the focus on genocide, because he really felt that it was important to focus on individuals as individuals, not as members of groups. And uh, he was a driving force between other contemporary instruments like the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And I do think in retrospect, the emphasis on genocide, perhaps to the exclusion of other crimes, has not been particularly constructive.
0: All right. So one thing that the Genocide Convention does is, unlike a lot of other categories of crime within the context of conflict or or international law-recognized crimes is that it actually sets up a state-to-state adjudicative mechanism, which is to say it allows one state to effectively sue another state at the International Court of Justice. So walk us through this. What is the ICJ and how did it end up being the adjudicative mechanism for claims of genocide by one state against another.
2: Sure. Well, the ICJ has been around uh, since the creation of the United Nations after World War II, and in fact, its predecessor, which was ironically called the Permanent Court of International Justice, uh, was created at the time of the League of Nations. So the idea, and just, and
0: just to just to clear everybody's mind. This is not the ICC, the International Criminal Court. It has two but not three letters in common with it.
2: So acronyms can be confusing. And moreover, these two institutions, which, as you say, are completely different, both sit in The Hague. So there is uh, some basis for confusion between them. But the ICC is a much, much more recent Creation. It's created under its own separate international treaty called the Rome Statute. And it has a prosecutor's office. And the prosecutor brings cases against individuals for criminal acts under international law, which can include the criminal act of genocide or conspiracy or attempt to commit genocide. So there is a a substantive overlap with certain treaties, but a very, very different forum. So the ICJ is not a court of first resort for most international disputes. It's got a very limited jurisdiction. And this is because countries at the time of creating both the League of Nations, which folks may remember the United States actually never became part of, and then the United Nations, uh, countries are very wary of supranational governance of giving up their sovereignty uh, but they also recognize that they need to cooperate in an organized fashion uh, precisely to avoid the scale of violence that unfortunately we're seeing now and so the international court of justice has i think played a very useful role over the years there are times when its jurisdiction has been more regularly invoked other times when it has been less busy But in the state-to-state context, the idea is if two countries have either joined a treaty and agreed in that treaty that if they have arguments under the treaty, the ICJ will be the decision maker, the adjudicator uh, in that dispute, or on an ad hoc basis, if they're arguing about something and feel like the continued argument is politically costly. They can agree to submit a dispute to the ICJ on an ad hoc basis. Uh, And the court is much larger, I think, than many folks are used to in a domestic context. It's got 15 judges. The judges are elected, and and the General Assembly of the United Nations and the Security Council both elect judges to the ICJ for nine-year terms. And those 15 judges plus occasionally ad hoc judges appointed by the parties, decide disputes ranging from uh, boundary disputes involving territory, involving maritime delimitation, uh, all sorts of things that you can imagine states might fight about. The interesting thing about the Genocide Convention is it's, of course, not just a bilateral treaty between two states. It's a multilateral treaty, which countries join uh, and Israel joined, you know almost at the same time that the State of Israel was founded. And in that treaty is a clause saying that any party to the treaty uh, can bring a case to the ICJ if there's a dispute about the interpretation or application of the treaty. So when South Africa joined the treaty in 1998, it essentially entered into a treaty relationship with all other countries that are party to the genocide convention. And I hadn't realized this before, but I've read that actually the genocide convention is the only multilateral treaty under which Israel has agreed to subject itself to the jurisdiction of the International Court of Justice. And I think the reason many countries have agreed to do so under the genocide convention is no country imagines itself to be the perpetrator
0: of genocide. Right. Particularly not Israel.
2: Well, on top of it all, right? So the whole idea of the convention is actually to define unacceptable behavior so we don't end up having a dispute about whether or not genocide is occurring because nobody will engage in genocide. But uh, the court does have jurisdiction under that binding treaty. South Africa and Israel are both parties. Uh, And then the one other thing I'd add is, generally speaking, in these what we call contentious disputes before the ICJ, you would imagine a party that you know itself was injured by another state's conduct to bring a claim to the ICJ to try to seek redress. And under the Genocide Convention, once before, somewhat recently, the Gambia actually brought a case against Myanmar for uh, its alleged genocide against the Rohingya people, And the court accepted the the argument that the Gambia made, which is number one, the Rohingya people don't have their own state, so they couldn't bring their own claim under the genocide convention, at least in the ICJ. And number two, every country that's party to the genocide convention has an interest in ensuring that genocide doesn't occur. And so in fact, Uh, The obligation not to commit genocide is what we call in international law an erga omnis obligation. It's one that any country can essentially seek to enforce or to vindicate, and that is what South Africa is attempting to do here.
0: All right. So there seems to me to be an antecedent question to whether Israel is violating the Genocide Convention now which is whether Hamas was violating the Genocide Convention on October 7th. That is, you know, they went into Israel, they attacked a whole bunch of settlements, killed, raped, and kidnapped a large number of people because they were, you know, Israelis or Jews— it seems to me the initial question, which is not before the court, is when you're dealing with a, I, I don't know what to call that, a massacre or a pogrom or, uh, that is aimed at a group of people as a group of people, what makes that not cognizable under the Genocide Convention?
2: Well, so for purposes of South Africa's case against Israel, at least in terms of defining conduct as genocidal or not genocidal, really there isn't actually an antecedent legal question involving the conduct of Hamas. I mean, certainly that is the context in which Israel undertook its latest military operation. But believe it or not, and maybe for those who were on the receiving end of of those attacks and who are quite frankly on the receiving end of continued rocket attacks, maybe it feels like that ought to be an antecedent question, but what really matters in this, again, because litigation between countries is so rare and so carefully circumscribed based on this principle of state consent Uh, Hamas's actions will not be adjudicated in the ICJ. Now, interestingly, they may well be adjudicated in that other court you mentioned, in the International Criminal Court, which is conducting investigations, including uh, investigations of the attacks perpetrated by Hamas. That could be a whole other podcast because there are evidentiary issues and jurisdictional issues, but it's I think maybe headlines like the ones we've seen about Israel defending itself against claims of genocide in the ICJ somehow creates this expectation that the ICJ is sort of a free-floating court there to pronounce upon the acts of various different state and non-state actors,
0: uh, and it really isn't. So to be clear here, from the ICJ's perspective, legitimately, the question begins not with Hamas's actions, but with the Israeli response to them.
2: I think that's fair to say, and that in the context of assessing allegations of genocide, it's not that the time, the aperture for for sort of looking at the time frame can't be widened to include events leading up to October 7th. Uh, and certainly, I think the ICJ is going to be very cognizant uh, or should be of Hamas's continued Uh, military actions both within Gaza uh, against the Israeli army and then also uh, outside of Gaza in the form of rocket attacks and uh, an announced intention to continue attempting to perpetrate attacks on the scale of October 7th. That will all form part, I think, of of the court's assessment of the genocide claims and what kind of order it might craft in response. But it's not actually uh, legally Salient doesn't make a difference to to how the court evaluates Israel's intent here.
0: All right. So, sketch out for us, if you will, a a high altitude summary of South Africa's case. What is the version of the facts uh, that amounts to Israel being in violation of the Genocide Convention in its conduct in Gaza? So the hearings that
2: took place on January 11th and 12th were specifically on a request by South Africa for the court to issue uh, what we call provisional measures. Um, One might analogize that to a preliminary injunction in domestic law. So it has filed its complaint, which we call an application, alleging violations of the convention, but it has further requested given the urgency of the situation, the risk of irreparable harm, that the court intercede very early on at this preliminary phase and order Israel not to take certain actions or to take certain actions. So South Africa's account of why the court should do this is first in order to issue provisional measures, the court need only decide that it has jurisdiction over South Africa's claims prima facie. In other words, that the conduct South Africa is alleging is uh, prima facie could fall within the scope of the Genocide Convention. That again is a a fairly low bar, although one that Israel argues uh, South Africa has not met. And then South Africa needs to show that Israel has plausibly violated rights under the Genocide Convention. Uh, and then there's some other requirements for for specific actions that South Africa is, is asking the court to take. So I think what really uh, South Africa's argument focused on, was this idea that Israel has plausibly violated the Genocide Convention and its obligations under the convention include, of course, the obligation not to commit genocide, so not to commit acts including killings and displacement for the purpose or with the specific intent of destroying Palestinians in Gaza as such. And moreover, there is an obligation under the convention to prevent and punish incitement to genocide. And I think a lot of observers found that some of South Africa's most powerful evidence came from the painstaking compilation that South Africa and other non-governmental groups have done of comments made both during the military campaign, but also before it by a variety of Israeli government and civil society actors that really do dehumanize Palestinians and, you know, taken, again, uh, on their face value, would at least make a genocidal intent on Israel's part plausible.
0: Yeah. And I I think most of that would be relatively easy to ignore if it were just civil society actors, but we are talking about at least two government ministers, although not government ministers who are directly in the chain of command of the conduct of the war. What do we know about how the court is likely to think about you know, statements that are, you know, wildly unacceptable by people who don't obviously have the power to do the things they're talking about doing, when the prime minister with a lot of hemming and hawing is, at the end of the day, not saying those things and actually, you know, saying something else. Well,
2: you know, South Africa argued that the Prime Minister Netanyahu is not saying something else because he has made references to, you know, the biblical destruction or the call to destroy Amalek and the Amalekites. I think that this really is the, the crux of the big picture dispute because Israel, of course, came in on the second day of argument. It did focus on Hamas's actions. I think in order to remind the court that There is a backdrop to this conflict and another explanation for Israel's actions. Uh, And when we get to what we call the merit stage, which if we get there, people should be well aware would take years on the courts, sort of based on the court's past engagement in cases involving allegations of genocide, um, which would include very careful parsing, as you suggest, Ben, of Particular statements, the particular roles of the particular people who have made those statements, the connection between the statements and what's happening on the ground, any potential mitigating acts Israel pointed to many in its arguments, including Uh, the provision, however, insufficient of humanitarian aid, the call on civilians to evacuate, which Israel portrays not as an attempt at forced displacement for the purpose of destroying a people as such, but trying to clear civilians from an area that it uh, knew Hamas was embedded in and under uh, and and could not uh, conduct a military campaign in the midst of a high civilian presence. Again, South Africa comes back and says, well, you're also bombing areas you said were safe. So the the more uh in the weeds the court decides to get, the more this starts to look like a determination on the merits, which it will not, which it can't reach at this stage and, and will certainly not want to reach. So then the question becomes among these 17 judges, 15 judges who are there by virtue of of their nine-year appointments, some of which, interestingly, are coming to an end in February. So a different bench of judges would hear eventual, uh, or somewhat different bench would hear eventual arguments on the merits, Um, plus two ad hoc judges, one appointed each by Israel and South Africa, are going to have to decide how into the weeds to get, whether they feel that, in fact, one can fairly summarily dismiss many of the comments compiled by South Africa on the grounds that they are not made by decision makers, uh, or whether the plausibility threshold is met simply by the volume of comments and the fact that some of them were made by people who are part of the current political establishment, coupled with uh, the extreme devastation on the ground, which again, I don't think Israel contests the degree of devastation. It contests the applicable legal framework and and whether or not it has violated that framework.
1: How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC.
0: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So as to the devastation, I assume Israel's response would be, number one, the specific intent was to go after Hamas, not to destroy a people. And Hamas's embedding within the civilian population makes it impossible to do the former without major uh, damage to the latter. But secondly, I would assume their argument as well is that they have, because of October 7th, a right of self-defense, and the purpose, defending oneself, is not a genocidal purpose. Give us an overview of the Israeli defense here, and what are the other components of it?
2: Well, again, we're going to have to look at this at this stage through the lens of plausibility. And the ICJ, hasn't really defined plausibility in a way that would enable us as outside observers to say, in my view, that judges will absolutely find that it has been satisfied or not. I think two things are true. One is, at least at this provisional measures stage, the fact that there are also other plausible intents behind Israel's actions will not in itself Prevent a finding that genocidal intent is also plausible, um, but I think you're absolutely right, Ben. This is where, of course, Hamas's attacks, its uh, stated goals of uh, essentially eradicating or destroying the the state of Israel, are very much part of the context. I think Defense Minister Gallant's comment immediately following the Hamas attacks in which he referred to, at least my understanding and that of a number of outside observers at the time, referred to those who perpetrated the October 7th and 8th attacks as human animals, which is itself dehumanizing rhetoric for sure. But I think South Africa. Has suggested that that comment referred to all Palestinians. The second part of that comment did announce what he called a complete siege of the Gaza Strip. Now, although a few days into the operation, I, I think there was you know an agreement to let water in, and electricity is becoming been coming in in bits and pieces. I mean, I do think that's extremely problematic to come from the defense minister, because even if your goal is to deprive Hamas of water and electricity to survive in the tunnels it has built, as a matter of the laws of war, and even potentially as a matter of laws governing crimes against humanity, where that specific intent to destroy a group isn't required, it's an extremely, extremely problematic statement, and extremely problematic conduct. So whether the court is going to say, you know, you may have had other reasons for doing these things and the damage that has been inflicted may also be attributable to Hamas's way of conducting its own operations, that's not going to be enough, I think, for at least some of the judges to find that a genocidal intent is not also plausible. But certainly that is what Israel has argued and I think when and if we get to a merits stage, there is also language in the court's jurisprudence suggesting that to find genocide on the merits, that genocidal intent needs to be the only explanation or the only possible explanation. And so there is a disconnect, certainly, between the legal framework or the legal test at this preliminary stage and the legal test that would apply at what we call the merit stage, and I think it's it's going to be very difficult for the court. I think each judge, like so many people, um, will come to this conflict as a whole with preconceptions, with understandings based on their own life experiences, their own information sources about you know whether or not they can more easily put themselves in the shoes of Israelis reeling from these attacks or the shoes of Palestinians. Uh, who still do not have their own universally recognized state. And I think when it comes to plausibility, those experiences and preconceptions might inform the analysis even more than they would on the merits, precisely because it's kind of a mushy standard.
0: Yeah, so if we take out the statements and we just say, look at the conduct of the IDF on the ground in Gaza alone. Is there a plausible case just based on based on the devastation, based on the use of you know, very large weapons that could be expected to have substantial collateral civilian impact? Or is South Africa really relying on the statements here to take what we would otherwise look at as, hey, maybe this stuff is, is or isn't proportional within the meaning of the law of armed conflict, and we would be thinking about in that context and kind of ratchet it up into you know, a genocide analysis, but really the, that work is all being done by the statements. That's
2: another um, not surprisingly good question. I think if you asked South Africa's legal team, they would say you only need to look at the conduct and its consequences. They would say we've compiled these statements for you as sort of additional circumstantial evidence. Um, And certainly the statements are critical to the incitement to genocide charges, but that the conduct itself the scale of devastation plausibly allows an inference of genocidal intent. I think South Africa was very clear that that's the argument it's making. Uh, Israel disagrees with that legal framework and says, look, even if you are just trying to look for plausible genocidal conduct, you, you can't make that assessment based solely on conduct. It's a specific intent crime and you need to look at uh, or you need to actually show, right, a plausible connection between specific decision makers statements and and what's going on on the ground. And you need to take into account these countervailing examples of uh, letting in humanitarian aid, you know trying to be selective, Israel says in its uh, choice of targets, uh, giving the population some lead time to evacuate, even at the expense Israel says of, you know, the potential success of its own military strikes. Again, I think this whole conflict, this particular conflict is, of course, viewed against the backdrop of prior Israeli military campaigns in Gaza, where allegations of genocide have been less common, although not absent, but allegations of war crimes have been quite pervasive. And so I think Again, there's a whole other conversation to be had about whether either proportionality or the, the laws of war as interpreted in the context of urban warfare do what they're supposed to do in terms of protecting the civilian population. Because if this is what a compliant, lawful conduct of war looks like, then we then definitely need to revisit our legal categories. But it, in terms of the allegations of genocide, again, I think Depending on how much importance the court puts on trying to come up with some sort of at least manor- majority opinion and then maybe some additional separate or dissenting opinions versus everybody just writing their own opinion, which is, which is uncommon, but not unheard of. A threshold question will also be, are the comments, the collected comments, in addition to speaking to the incitement charge, you know, how much are they necessary to connect in order plausibly to draw an inference of genocidal intent based on the scale of civilian harm, notwithstanding uh, the fact that it would be essentially impossible to eradicate a a fighting force of up to 40,000 people with 450 miles of underground tunnels without inflicting a a pretty devastating civilian toll.
0: So is it fair to summarize I'm going to be very crass about how I summarize both sides of this. But it seems to me South Africa is saying, look at the devastation. That's kind of all you need. But if you have any doubt, look at the statements of Itamar Ben-Gvir and Bezalel Smotrich uh, and Yoav Galant, which confirm the basic picture that you get by turning on your television. And the Israelis are saying... South Africa can't point to a single Palestinian who's, you know, been intentionally killed or a group of Palestinians as such that have been intentionally targeted. All of the targeting has been at Hamas. And we've taken real care to avoid civilian casualties, which is impossible in this setting. And don't listen to the idiots that we happen to have in our government.
2: Well, I would agree with that characterization overall, but I would say, in addition to uh, don't listen to the idiots in our government, Israel, at least in its in its arguments at this stage, it is. Definitely asserted that its conduct of the war complies with international law, but those are very broad brushstroke statements and ones that one would assume or expect Israel to make in this setting. It has basically said all the court is authorized or empowered to look at at this stage because we're talking about the genocide convention is the existence or lack of the requisite specific intent. And so rather than saying, you know, South Africa hasn't pointed to a single case in which we've explicitly targeted a Palestinian on account of her group membership, what they would say is, and what they did say is, it's inconceivable that a country like Israel that is in the situation that Israel is currently in could possibly have the kind of intent that South Africa is attributing to it. And this is where I think it gets really tricky because there are so many people, as you well know, and as your listeners all know, who, without even hearing those additional statements, would clearly view Israel as a genocidal government. And that comes as a big surprise, I think, to a lot of Israelis, but it, it is what we are seeing here, uh, here, I mean, in the United States, but also in other parts of the world. And then there are many also who, especially given the historical origin of the concept of genocide, but also given, and this is where I think that the degree of horror and brutality experienced by Israelis and others uh, on October 7th and 8th really makes it inconceivable for those affected by uh, or observing that to to imagine what other kind of response one might expect from a country that is facing this and and can't can't conceive of how you could impute genocidal motives to the response. So I, I think it is it is not so much in the weeds although that is where the merits would get it is it is really this higher level debate um, or, or disconnect, between perceptions of both the immediate and the longer term situation, and South Africa, as I discuss in the piece, um, you know, is not a—it's no—it's no coincidence that South Africa has really led the charge here, because there is a feeling, I think, a pervasive feeling that countries like Israel, the United States, the United Kingdom have gotten away with slaughter and with widespread killing sort of under the guise of international law um, for too long and that this is sort of a a reckoning. And I think there are a lot of expectations um, among watchers of this case that that it will be difficult to fulfill both expectations that the court will proclaim that uh, allegations of genocide are plausible and Israel must stop the war immediately or that the court will exonerate Israel of any possible suggestion that it's doing anything wrong, at least under the parameters of the Genocide Convention.
0: Yeah, so let's talk about South Africa's motivations here. As you say, there is a kind of a long-term anti-colonial agenda that the ANC has, but they've also been... Exceedingly tolerant of Russian actions of, in Ukraine, uh, and as you note in the piece, they've been, uh, you know, at one point uh, refused to honor an ICC warrant against Omar al Bashir, the 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 then president of of Sudan, on. Uh, war crimes and and crimes against humanity uh, charges. So h- how should we understand South Africa's zeal in bringing this case? Is it mostly a kind of sympathy with the Palestinian struggle as it maps onto the ANC's long-term struggle? is it mostly a sort of anti, Western thing, or is it mostly sort of a a kind of, you know, thumb in the eye to the West? How do you understand their their desire to bring a case like this?
2: Well, I'm not an expert by any stretch. Um, And I think rather than thumb in the eye, they would say, you know, using available international institutions to try to level the playing field. I think that the analog perhaps in the United States is the Center for Constitutional Rights has also filed a lawsuit against the Biden administration for aiding and abetting genocide by providing arms to Israel. So it's clear that there's a pervasive sense that whatever legal tools we have so far have not been sufficient to protect the civilian population in Gaza we're hearing now about an impending famine on top of disease i mean there there again i think there really is no genuine dispute about the humanitarian catastrophe there which is not to say that there is not um there are not also humanitarian catastrophes created by armed conflict in other parts of the world so i think that the focus on gaza certainly has you know, multiple factors contributing to it, but I, I do think that the frustration with the United Nations Security Council uh, and the inability of the UN General Assembly to uh, inability, literally as as a matter of the UN Charter, to issue resolutions that are legally binding uh, means that there are. I think coalitions of people whose concerns are animated by a variety of different factors that have kind of coalesced around litigation as one advocacy strategy. And this is the interesting thing about um, or uninteresting thing about the current situation, which is sort of looking from the outside as we all are, you know what are the best points of leverage? to try to both ensure that Israel, and I I realize now I didn't directly address your point about self-defense and the law of self-defense. I mean, I also think that the ICJ's order at this stage of the hearings will not dive into that. Although both parties had their own arguments about the law of self-defense. I think that people are looking for points of leverage to try and, alleviate human suffering, and then for the most part also uh, ensure that that Israel does not undergo uh, the same kind of attacks to which it was subjected last fall. And so the Biden administration has, it appears, primarily been seeking to use or exert diplomatic leverage. Uh, and then lawyers, you can expect, <laughs> would try to turn to the courts. So I, I do think it, it's likely mixed motivations, but perhaps the amount of attention that the case has received um, also kind of attests to this confluence of feelings in in countries all around the world um, that, on the one hand, I think many were very supportive and are very supportive of attempts at, at normalization in the region of the idea that there could be a lasting peace, um, but also I think a, a real sense of identification with Palestinians, not just in Gaza, um, but more generally, uh, who have perhaps precisely because Israel does have the, the trappings of democracy. And, and I know you had a podcast recently in a, a post on lawfare about the continued vibrancy, at least more so than than the current government would like of Israeli courts and the judicial system you know there that creates the expectation that uh there would be more genuine equality that there would be the ability of people to live uh in all parts of this land without being under anyone's thumb and uh and I think that that is is animating uh, a lot of the attention a lot of to come back to what you started with at the outset a lot of the passion Uh, And a lot of the real inability, which again is, is completely understandable. But again, going back to the beginning as someone who needs to this semester stand in the front of a classroom and make everyone feel like their voices can be heard, but also that they need to listen to and appreciate the voices and perspectives of others. Uh, that that this is an issue on which um, people have a v- understandably have a very hard time doing that. And so the judges have a really tall order, I think, ahead of them. They're not going to please everybody. They may not please anybody. I think the more carefully they they parse the record such as it exists at the moment, you know, the more they may be inclined to accept the argument, Ben, that you put forth that, you know, we should we should disregard the act comments by civil society actors. We should remind Israel it needs to prosecute and punish incitement. We need to remind Israel that it cannot conduct genocidal acts and and it should be taking every action possible to make it inconceivable, even to outside observers who might not otherwise be so disposed that there are genocidal aspirations here on any sort of official level, but at the same time, the court is uh, also going to want to live up to the expectation, and I, I'm sure what many of the judges feel is the responsibility, to, to act in an urgent situation, which this indisputably is.
0: Yeah. So what do you, you've kind of teased that a little bit, but what do you reasonably expect from them in this preliminary phase and in what time frame?
2: Well, if I were more of a court watcher, as so many people are in the United States, I would be uh, you know, looking judge by judge at their prior rulings and uh, statements to try to to read the tea leaves even more on, on how they might come out. I think as a general matter, first of all, we're going to get some sort of decision by the end of the month. As I mentioned, there's an upcoming turnover in judges. And in previous provisional measures requests, it's very clear under the court's Statute that, uh, or you know, sort of method of of doing its work that it prioritizes provisional measures requests and responding to them. So even though cases take years to resolve on the merits, that the provisional measures order, I think we would see fairly quickly, although not as quickly as we saw in in the Ukraine versus Russia case, because there I think Russia really didn't have many counter arguments on why it could lawfully invade Ukraine. It just said that there wasn't jurisdiction under the treaty. Um, and it didn't even show up to say that, but, but that was the uh, the counter argument here. You know, I, I don't see an order that gives Israel everything that it wants, and I don't see an order that gives South Africa everything that it wants. Of course, the the so called devil is in the details, and I think it is. It would be hard to imagine. Many judges, uh, although I'm sure there will be at least a couple, including presumably the ad hoc judge from Israel, saying that that genocidal intent is, is not even conceivable here. And then the question will really be, how, how does each judge determine what plausibility means? Uh, and in terms of the order, Again, many have said that that you need to pay attention to all of the details of the order. I don't imagine that we would see from a majority of the judges an order that Israel must cease all military operations in Gaza, uh, nor do I anticipate that if that were the order, Israel would comply with it. Um, Again, because it has an obligation also to protect its population, and although it's certainly debatable whether the current scale of military operation is, is required to protect the Israeli population. Certainly, uh, some military defense is is required. Uh, I also don't see the court, you know, really getting into the weeds of the conduct of a military operation, because these folks are not, you know, they're not commanders. Uh, I, you'd have to look at their biographies, but I...
0: I right, it's not the ICC.
2: Well, never them. Well, even the ICC judges haven't necessarily set foot on a battlefield. So, you know, so they're not going to be able to to be super specific. Uh, At the same time, I think they don't want to just talk in platitudes. So they wouldn't want to just say Israel must, you know, abide by its obligations under the genocide convention. So uh, I think we'll see some language about humanitarian aid, you know, some language towards maybe, you know, working towards the quickest possible cessation of military activities. Um, But there also will be presumably from the South African judge and perhaps several others, either an indication that they would have uh, ordered an immediate humanitarian ceasefire uh, and, or that, that they would order, you know, much more extensive provisional measures that would really tie Israel's hands again in South Africa's view to prevent them from continuing to commit genocide uh, in Israel's view that that would prevent them from, from defending their population.
0: We are going to leave it there. Shimen, thank you for writing the piece and thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Thank you, Ben. I hope that the next time we speak, it's in better circumstances.
0: The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution, our audio engineer. This episode is the intrepid Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Folks, I know you hear me say this all the time and it's true every time. So it kind of just blurs into the ether and you ignore it, but I don't want you to ignore it. I want you to go become a material supporter of lawfare. Here's what's in it for you. You get rid of the ads. You don't ever have to listen to an ad again on the lawfare podcast. Here's what we get out of it. Your support. It's a good trade. You'll also be doing the right thing because we bring you all kinds of stuff that nobody else brings you. So don't think about it too much. Just do it. Lawfaremedia.org support. The Lawfare podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by the Istanbul-based journalist, Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening.